nothing's going to change in my family system. My father is not going to apologize to me. I didn't have any faith in anything like that. And it was more like, if anything's going to change, it has to be me. And I have to face this squarely. I'm Matthew Philp. I'm Elizabeth Thompson. And I'm Erin Hosier. And this is Tell Me About Your Father, a podcast about daddy issues, father figures, and dismantling the paternal mystique. We examine how fathers, both literal and symbolic, influence pop culture, politics, and the lives of people of every generation from all over the world. So settle in and listen as we delve into some dad stuff. I'm Elizabeth Thompson. My guest today is the writer Gretchen Charrington, author of the 2020 memoir Poetic License, which chronicles her difficult relationship with her late father, Richard Eberhardt, a Pulitzer Prize-winning poet and U.S. Poet Laureate under Presidents Eisenhower and Kennedy. Her father, known for his exuberance and huge circle of writer friends, was a poet in residence at Dartmouth, where he taught creative writing for almost 40 years and where his extensive archives and letters are housed. Gretchen, who grew up with Dylan Thomas and Allen Ginsberg coming over for pot roast, loved watching her father write at his typewriter as a girl, eager to get a few minutes of his hard-won attention. As a teenager, however, Gretchen noticed a shift in her dynamic with her dad, who began eyeing her whenever she wore skirts or dresses. She eventually felt so uncomfortable around him that she convinced her parents to enroll her in a Swiss boarding school, insisting it would help her to better study French. One night, when she was 17 and back in her parents' home, they threw a party to celebrate Anne Sexton for her Pulitzer win. After Gretchen went upstairs to go to sleep, on cloud nine that Sexton had taken interest in her and asked her questions at the party, her father came into her room, sat at her bedside, and groped her. When she kicked him away, he laughed and left the room. Gretchen, who remained silent over what had happened for the next five decades, revealed what her father had done to her before a stunned audience while speaking at an International Women's Day event in Hanover, New Hampshire in 2017. He had been dead for 12 years and her mother for longer. In our interview, Gretchen talks to me about this corrosive secret that ate away at her for so many years, the unexpected support she received from her father's friends, many of whom were elderly by the time she revealed what had happened, and the experience of hearing from, she estimates, nearly a dozen women who say that her dad made unwanted advances at them while they were his college students. She also talks to me about her father's relationship with his own intimidating father, whose name was Alpha LaRue Eberhardt. He was a Hormel executive and the right hand to company founder George Albert Hormel. In 1921, Alpha uncovered that Hormel's comptroller had embezzled $1.2 million from the company, a remarkable and strange story at the center of Gretchen's latest book, The Butcher, the Embezzler, and the Fall Guy, a family memoir of scandal and greed in the meat industry, which investigates whether her grandfather was complicit in the crime, as well as the impact that this had on her teenage father. Listen as Gretchen tells me about the, quote, conspiracy of silence that keeps powerful men or abusers in power and the lifelong work that is healing and finding one's voice. Okay, here's my talk with Gretchen. 
Your book is filled with these idyllic descriptions of life, both in in Hanover, New Hampshire, where you mostly grew up, where you spent big parts of your childhood, but also summers in Maine. And in both locations, you had kind of like a constant killer's row (laughs) of like the literary greats in your home. Robert Frost, Robert Lowell, Dylan Thomas, who you have an incredible anecdote about in your book, getting drunk and wandering off into <laughs> your ch- your brother's bedroom when he was a baby to talk to him through his crib. And Sexton, just amazing. What was that like growing up with these these massive figures in your home? And, and as a child, did you understand the significance of who they were or were they just some some cranky old men in your house smoking pipes? Random people. Uh, (laughs) I mean, really, as a small child, I don't think I understood who they were, except friends of my parents. And maybe I understood a little bit that they were also writers or poets or novelists. But I didn't know their import in the literary canon or really anything of that for quite a while, actually, because I think partially I'll credit my mom with this, especially that you know, she was a very grounded, down-to-earth person who didn't care for airs. And, um, you know, she could speak right back to the Pulitzer Prize winners and put them in their place. And so I never, I, I just thought that they were kind of their friends and had probably something to do with my father's work, but I didn't really understand who they were. In fact, when I went to boarding school in Switzerland in 10th grade, that was really the first time that I really realized, oh my goodness, people know him over here. I thought people just knew him in Hanover. I didn't know that people in Lausanne and Geneva and London knew him too. And, And so that was really probably the first time when I thought, oh, this is a little different than what I had construed. But being around them as a little kid, some of them, like Donald Hall and Philip Booth, and there were probably a few others, but those two in particular really were sort of like fathers. You know, I knew their daughters and sons and I saw them a lot in the summer. So I played with their kids. They were just sort of like neighbor dads. And so they were quite different to me than people like Robert Frost or Allen Ginsberg or Ann Sexton, who were a little bit more removed from the family in that way. And mostly my experience, even from childhood, was that they just filled up the air in the room, that there was very little extra air to be Mm. had. And as you read in the book, I mean, there were many times when I just wanted a little attention from my dad and there wasn't much to get. There were times, I think, when I kind of resented them, but that was a little bit more when I was older, say preteen, teen, maybe I I resented them a little bit more because they Mm. took up so much space. And I remember in high school thinking, I don't think I can count more than, I don't know, four or five dinners this year that I had with my parents. There was mm-hmm. always somebody else there. And it could be students, it could be literary critics passing through, it could be poets that my dad brought to Dartmouth and were having dinner before their reading. It could be neighbors or random friends from Hanover too. Our house was just constantly full of people and that wore on me over time. Yeah. <laughs> so even as a teenager, you could sense that there was kind of a, a wedge driven between you and your dad. It sounds like both of your parents together that, that they had a hard time just 
connecting just to you or just to your brother? Yeah, I think in some ways. I mean, my mom was terrific when we were little. She was, she had great fun with little kids. And so in Maine, you know, she would organize us all into drama groups and <laughs> put on massive plays and everything. I mean, I'm a mom too, and I <laughs> I certainly was not perfect at all. But, you know, teenage years were a lot tougher for her. And then because of her epilepsy, I mean, I do think that that, I don't know if I would have called it a wedge exactly, but it did have such a big influence over my years growing up that, you know, there was this a little bit of a reversal of roles in that there were many times when I really had to be her caretaker and then for myself in New York or Boston when she was having seizures. So that in itself, I think, sort of forced me to grow up in a way, but also left me feeling like she wasn't really there for me. And my dad was certainly not there for me. Yeah, there's that trauma that comes with being put into situations as a child where you have to be a grown up. And I really felt for for little for little <laughs> you, for young Gretchen describing in the book, so excited to go to New York City with your mother and she has epilepsy, which is one of the many things that kind of goes undiscussed in your family. Yes. And which we'll we'll circle back to later in the interview. But, you know, there's there's a, a really a sad scene where you talk about the hypervigilance that comes with that responsibility of being a child and knowing that your your parent could have a seizure at any moment or have a medical emergency at any moment and not even really being able to relax enough to enjoy a museum or a department store or a theater with your mom that you're constantly thinking about where's a bench where she could go sit after a seizure or the nearest exit. I imagine that that's that's exhausting. And I also, you know, imagine that your your dad's sort of fame and his love for fame (laughs) um, uh, was also left you feeling sort of exhausted. You do describe your father as delighting in his fame and he really is this sort of larger than life character especially to your, through your eyes as a little girl that comes through really beautifully in the memoir you know you clearly really looked up to him and you have this great scene that describes the excitement of watching him type at his typewriter and I was wondering if you could read it for our reader, for our listeners as a curly-headed little girl I'd watch my father write some of those letters, his shoulders muscled forward as he typed on his Smith Corona, while I knelt on his desk, peering into the typewriter's guts. I loved the sound of black ink smacking white vellum and the syncopation of the little hammers as his fingers flew across his keyboard, ending each line with a solid thwap of the return bar. I marveled at how he could type out a letter while gripping one of his teeth-grooved pipe stems between his canines and simultaneously tell me who was coming for dinner that night. Sometimes I'd get antsy and stand on the desk in my bare feet to gain stature before bending over and practically falling into the typewriter, blood rushing to my head, making me feel giddy. Okay, Gretsch, Dad would then chuckle. I can't very well finish this letter with your head in my way. Now I am looking at his letters with the eyes of a woman a woman who had both adored her father and been betrayed by him. Yeah, um, and we'll we'll talk a little bit more about that betrayal in later in the interview, but I love that scene because it captures 
your view of him as a little girl, um, but also captures the space he took up at home, right? Was there room like for any of your creativity? Did he ever encourage you as a writer or your brother as a writer or a creative person or a thinker? My mother, certainly, but not my father, really very little. I remember much later in the book, I'm sure you read about the scene where I go to him when he's quite quite a lot older. He's maybe mm -hmm. in his 80s or something. And, and I had just started writing about him and I thought I would read to him one of my chapters or scenes that I was working on. Mm -hmm. And and I said there, and it's true, that I don't think I'd ever read him anything that I'd written before. <laughs> um, there just didn't seem to be very much interest. My brother, I think, had more interest from my father. My brother has the same name. He was aspiring to be a writer by the time he was in college and, you know, a little bit older than that, too. And, and he was male, <laughs> uh, simply. I think I look back on it now and and... I think it would have been unlikely for my father to have brought me in, in part because of my gender. But no, he just never really, he liked it when I entertained him. So if I was turning my cartwheels, if you want to call that a creative expression, you know, he enjoyed being entertained, but he didn't ever really encourage me to do things um, of that sort. And no homework, no, nothing like that. That was our mom's role. Yeah, it's, you know, when I reading your book, I thought so much of my mother's father, who was a doctor. Um, okay. Every story had to go back to him. I vividly remember as like a teenager finding my grandmother's yearbook and asking her about the pictures in it and things people had written to her. And he, you know, marching off and coming back with his yearbook. <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, I, I, I can't, I just, he kept coming to mind reading your memoir and that combined with the real egoism of the male poet in air quotes, all caps mm -hmm. or yes. like, 60s writer. I know. I can't imagine. Yeah. It's a double whammy. It is um, sort of a double whammy. He would express pride in certain ways. If my brother had a good football game, he'd be mm -hmm. telling everybody about it. And if I did something that was interesting, not so much like got good grades, but if I'd been with somebody interesting or done something interesting, right. he was very proud of that. And he would tell everybody. And certainly when I was reading through his letters, there were lots of letters describing his joy or pleasure. And, you know, the fact that I'd gone off to Europe for a year and come back more sophisticated. Yeah. And so I never felt like he wasn't proud of me exactly, but I Really, at the base, I just never felt that he knew who I was. Right. That was very clear to me, that he right. didn't really know who I was. His enchantment, I think, with his own, with yeah. his own fame. Yes. Um, and his disinterest, I think, therefore, in his family and his kids. And I, yeah, that double whammy of maybe the time, too, of this, this yeah. era of father knows best, you know, the culture, and that men set the tone for the home. And, sure. You know, combined with the creative genius, um, I can't right. imagine. But I also, in in that note, can't imagine reading through my father's journals, his diaries. Your father, as a famous writer, kept has a whole archive. There's a mass yes. archive that you had access to his correspondence with other poets, with Allen Ginsberg, who you had a lovely connection with with later as a teenage girl and an adult. Just this, it, 
trove of anecdotes, Truly. recorded yeah. recorded memories of his to go back to. Right, right. Wow. <laughs> was I, a wow. When I think about family trauma, I think a common narrative that runs throughout it is denial or misremembrance. Yes. Um, and the the shared misremembrance of family. And it would be a lot nicer for us if you could shut up about the time that this happened or right. this right. didn't happen. You're that yeah. what you're talking about. Right. And so I'm wondering if there were you know, things that you were surprised to see in his archives, in his letters, portrayed differently than maybe you remembered or experiences right. that you remembered. What was interesting to me and somewhat of a surprise, may, maybe a little bit of a surprise, because when I was looking through his archives, which are at Dartmouth and they're voluminous, mm -hmm. one of, I guess it's one of the largest collections. And part of that is because my father carbon copied every letter he ever wrote and he saved all of those carbon copies so you have a complete epistolary conversation going on with other writers the letters that they send to him and then his responses to them so it's really quite a um, remarkable collection but most of the letters i i read did not like really contradict exactly things that i had experienced more where the contradiction came in was when I was in the room with him with someone else and experienced something quite differently. For instance, with Allen Ginsberg is sort of the, the you know, primary example that I have of, of um, just, you know, having a good connection with him when I was a teenager and his arrival at our house, um, clothing like a frumpy jacket and a black pants and black shoes or something. And then this tale being constructed by my father that he, he didn't write about it in his letters, but he told everybody that the reason why Alan and Peter Olofsky had been turned away for lodging at the Hanover Inn was because they were barefoot and in long robes. They had just come back from India and they were sort of in Buddhist long robes, barefoot. And well, they were turned away for lodging and... Mm -hmm. I think even at the time, I knew that was most likely because they were gay. Right. Certainly knew it as the years went by. But they didn't appear at our house. They didn't appear with bare feet. And so those are the kinds of things that were really hard for me to sort through. You know, I, I would hear him saying these things about Ginsburg that I just believed were patently wrong. Mm -hmm. And frankly, I never really spoke up about it. I felt guilty about that later when particularly when I re-met Alan later in life just before he died and and you know he helped me confront my father on that I, story both of your parents stuck to this story about them yes. being turned away for being barefoot but it was it was because they were gay yes. and there's a scene that you just mentioned in which your father is being honored and Alan Ginsberg comes and reads your father's poem, The Groundhog, and yes. then you, you pull him aside and you're like, look, let's just call it what it was. They were turned away because they were, I mean, you, I'm clearly paraphrasing, yeah. but basically make your father admit to Allen Ginsberg that he's been telling people for years they were turned away because they were barefoot. But in reading that, I was surprised at your father's sort of inability to acknowledge 
Ginsburg's gayness there, that there, yes. and which is a little odd because he had numbers of gay friends right. and certainly lesbian women authors. And, but I think he was, you know, I don't know whether it was his generation or right. what, but he, he, you know, made him a little squeamish, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but it's just one of the many examples in your memoir of this inability to, to look at things, to talk about things, particularly, as you mentioned before, your mom's epilepsy, that your father, he would call it her spells, right? Or yes. her episodes. He would never, it was the word epilepsy ever used in your house? Yes. But when he was, when in the moment it would be, she's had another spell. Or she's had another attack. As a young woman, you're having or entering into adolescence, your mother is having these attacks. And so you're hypervigilant there. But then you also start noticing unwanted attention from your father and right. like a real sense of unease in his presence, looking at you differently, trying to kiss you on the mouth frequently. Yeah. And and that was this other side of hypervigilance. Yes, right. <laughs> so yeah, that's I hadn't really thought about it that way. So I had to, I had to be hypervigilant for my mother mm -hmm. to protect her, and I had to be hypervigilant around my father to protect me. You know? Yeah, it's not. I think that's a tough place to be mm -hmm. in. I mean, I mm -hmm. I do feel that I I learned a lot of skills in terms of how to deal with an emergency and things like that. And now and then it's been helpful at some moment in my more adulthood life, adult life. But as a kid, that is not what I would aspire for any kid to have to be super vigilant about everything. Lots of kids do have to be for all kinds of reasons, but it it's certainly not a, a, a sort of positive childhood experience. Have you had to work as an adult to put that stuff down? Or how how did the hypervigilance surface in adulthood? I would have panic attacks sometimes. Mm -hmm. I had quite an anxiety disorder for quite a long time. Things would, you know, I, I would imagine the worst happening. You know, there's a lightning storm outside and everybody else is sort of enjoying the noise and <laughs> drama of it. And I am kind of cowering in the corner thinking that, we're all going to get struck and be dead, you know? And so I think those things really did affect me. And it took me quite a long time in therapy to sort of meter out or, or you know, tease out where those things really came from. And, um, you know, I think that it's one thing to be excited about things or anxious about things, but it's another thing to be anxious about anybody who comes to the door, let's say, or, you know, in a perfectly safe town driving around feeling like, geez, I better keep looking out my back window or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, there was a, I think, an, a sort of established fear in me that limited me too. You know, I, I think that's partly why it took so long for me to come out with my story. You describe in the book that once you were able to actually start kind of looking at what happened to you, that it was a, the experience of being on a jury and hearing yes. a lawyer describe what assault was, yep. unwanted, mm -hmm. unwanted touching of any kind. Yes. And the power, I really relate to that and the power of having someone squarely say, no, this was abuse. No, this was this. Yes. Uh, because when I think what your book does is such a beautiful 
way of, of highlighting is this this dichotomy of how does this woman who grow, grew up with a, a literary titan as a father and books all around her and words all around her this, not have the words, right? You right. know, and it's that it's that I always call like trauma. It's like a mausoleum, like it gets yeah. locked inside of you yes, and it yes. does steal your voice. Absolutely. Yeah. No, it, it sits there in your bones and it changes your chemistry and it, it, you know, it, it really does. I guess that's scientifically proven now. And and so you are, I, I think for many years, I was sort of reacting, you know, I was kind of in a reactive mode to what had happened with me, to me. And I, again, it took a long time to kind of work through that. So this incident with the court case mm-hmm. was really powerful for me because the state's attorney did just that. He made it very clear this other guy was being accused of assault and it was a domestic abuse situation. And I think I'd sort of tried on the word abuse before I had. I know I had tried on the word abuse before. I'd never tried on the word assault. And when he gave that very clear description, it was instantaneous recognition of, oh, I mean, I was asleep. It was purely unwanted. And then it was like, I mean, the nomenclature was helpful to me because it did help me face up to what really had happened. But by the same token, to consider my father, who was the least aggressive slash violent person maybe I've ever known, hardly, I mean, when he got mad, it wasn't, he wasn't like angry and stuff. I mean, he never conveyed any of that to sort of put the word assault next to my father was a very difficult thing for me to do. It made no sense on the one hand. And so I think this is also where, you know, people who have been sexually molested or abused have a really hard time kind of ferreting out, particularly if it's somebody that they know perhaps did love or continue to love. How can these two realities be together if the person is also generous and warm and kind and loving at times. And then I think it would be easier if he had just been a heinous person, you right. know, for me to hate him through all of it. But he really wasn't. And so I think I was in tune to listening for those things that would help me understand. And when I heard them, they were like lightning strikes kind of for me, you know, that that they really opened my eyes to what had happened and and I could no longer go back from that denial place. Once you're given, whether it's the words of someone else, a friend, a therapist, right. hearing right. someone else describe an experience and realizing, oh, that did happen or that yes. happened to me too. If it's okay for you, I'm going to just, just describe quickly what happened with your father for our listeners. That yeah, you, sure. were, you were asleep in your bed. There was a party going on at your house. And who was downstairs but Ian Sexton? I mean, the coolest badass. (laughs) It just won the Pulitzer. It just won the Pulitzer like your father. There's correspondence between she and your father about her Pulitzer and him congratulating her. She is downstairs and she pays attention to you. She acknowledges you. And this is something that didn't happen very often for you. He made you feel seen. Literally, she asked you questions and that you sort of thought, I, I want what she has. I did. Me looked up to her and 
that that same night was the night that while you were sleeping, your dad came into your room and tried to grope you while you were sleeping or did grope you and you, you kicked him away and he left before chuckling. He laughed and then he left the room. I imagine that that leaves you wondering, did it really happen? Was I asleep? You know, all of the stories that we can tell ourselves to keep ourselves safe. You know, yep. I wonder if all of those years that you had to live with this was your attempt at keeping yourself safe. I think that's probably true. I mean, I did stuff it down inside me somewhere and didn't really retrieve it again for a while. I think I knew intuitively in my bed that night that there were words for what had just happened. It was you know, 1967. I didn't know anything about this kind of possibility. And there was no way that I, it's not like he said, don't tell anybody it's our secret. None of that. But I knew that this was not something that I was going to share with anybody. And so I don't really know how the science and psychology and all that works exactly, but I stuffed it basically. Yeah. And I did that, I'm sure, to protect myself. I think in retrospect, I also feel like I did it, or at least maybe later on, I did it to protect my family. I thought, you know, if I divulge this about my father, who everybody adores, mm -hmm. and, you know, is at the peak of his career and all of that, the family is going to implode or the family is going to be destroyed. I mean, that almost sounds sort of narcissistic of me to consider that could destroy the family. But I think I really worried about that. And in the book, you know, I described when it kind of came back to me because I was in Florida in a condo with my parents and my kids at that point, and I was 35-ish or so. And he came into my bedroom in the morning and kind of moved towards sitting on the bed. I was awake, but sitting on the bed with me and I was just like, it all just flashed back. And yeah. You got to get out of here. What I will say is that this memory is very, very visceral for me, and it has never changed one iota. It has always been exactly the same. There's been nothing built onto it or taken away from it. It's just, it is what it is. And, you know, the, I can't remember who said this, but somebody, there was a quote I saw recently that it's not, after a while, it's not so much the secret itself as the fact that the secret was kept for so long that affects you. You know, it's, it's, I mean, in the manner of sexual abuse, my experience was middle, nevertheless, very impactful. And yet the caring of the secret for so long was, I think, what really kind of destroyed me, you know, and created this kind of existential crisis for me. And so when I woke up to it, you know, metaphorically in that, you know, bedroom in Florida, there was no turning back. It was, it was like, okay, I have shit to uncover and uh, I need to go to work. I, you know, nothing's going to change in my family system. My father is not going to apologize to me. I didn't have any faith in anything like that. And it was more like, if anything's going to change, it has to be me. And I have to face this squarely yeah. um, in my own ways. And, you know, one thing you made me think of a minute ago is that one of the places I turned was to memoirists mm -hmm. um, and particularly literary memoirists or memoirists of literary figures like Susan Cheever writing about her father or more recently Brennan Jobs 
Steve Jobs' mm-hmm. daughter with her book, um, but also people like Mary Carr. And it's kind of a classic memoirist who were all sort of coming out with their memoirs right about the time that I was coming out with my news to myself. <clears throat> and that was enormously helpful because, again, they gave words to things that I had experienced and they came from families that weren't too far off mine. So it seemed more real. Um, yeah. I wouldn't yeah. wish it on anybody. I know. I mean, I it's so hard to talk about. And, and I'm just, you know, as someone who hosts a podcast about different dads and family yes. dysfunction, I'm grateful to you that that you wrote this book and that you talk about in the book that, you know, 30% of people who experience sexual abuse never disclose it. Um, so the fact that Alarming. you talk about it in public the way that you have is so admirable. Fast forwarding a little bit to, to the event, which is in air quotes, the event, but which was really your public coming out with this story about your father. And it was slightly post Me Too, right? It was yeah, just about around Me Too. I mean, it okay. had Me Too, it started. Yeah. Can you tell our listeners what it was at a Women's Day event and what yes. the experience was like? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I was connected to, because, because of professional interests as well as personal interests, I was connected to the gender based violence agency in our area of New Hampshire at the time. And so they, and they knew that I'd been writing about my dad and they knew my story. And, and so they invited me to write something and read it at this event. And it was going to be in Hanover, right on the edge of the Dartmouth campus, basically my father's town. And I had no idea whether people would be there who knew him or had known him or knew of him, et cetera. And I also thought there'd be about 10 people that would show up, <laughs> but I get to this place and there's like 150 people. And I remember going up on the stage. I had, you know, four or five pages and I was literally just trembling. I mean, in fact, the woman who was videoing it showed me later. <laughs> no question. My clothing was sort of shaking. You know, I was trembling so hard, I was so afraid. And one thing that this was kind of a venue where there was talking going on, there was a bar and I just, I walked up to the mic and I thought, there isn't any way that I'm going to be able to read this piece if people are talking. Right. I I mean, I need to have quiet. (laughs) And so I'd been consulting for a long time by then. I knew how to kind of corral the crowd. And so I spoke to the crowd. I just said, you know, heads up or everybody hear me out there or something like that. And that, that then quieted everybody down and I was able to read the piece and I'll never forget standing up there at when I ended and there was literal silence in the room, um, for, you know, a little bit, I don't know what it was in seconds or whatever, but it's, you know, it went on for a little while, just silence. And then all of a sudden there was a standing ovation. And I realized at that moment, if my family were to be destroyed, it had already been destroyed. And if my words made anybody angry or whatever, I was going to be okay with that because I really felt like I got tremendous support from that audience, most of whom didn't know me, the vast majority didn't know me. So that was also a very empowering time for me, you know, empowering moment. And I realized then that we get to own our stories and 
we get to tell them. And somebody else would write a different book about my father. I'm fine with that. This was my book. This is my story. One thing that I found to be very moving, there are a lot of poets with big personalities in your home <laughs> who, who joined your father in sucking the air out of the room. But there were also some people who were in his life who were able to help you as an adult later yes. understand what had happened, that you could confide in. A few of his friends validated your your feelings of, is my is my father leering at me in a mini skirt when I'm home? You were able to go to people who had been friends of your father's and square some of your memories as you were writing this book with theirs, and they all validated you. Not one person. Thank God. But your father's friend, Don, wrote something amazing to you that I just want to read. In a letter he wrote, you were concerned about, you know, sharing what had happened. And he wrote to you, don't protect Dick. If others don't like what you have to say, they can write their own book. Exactly. That was Donald Hall. And bless him. I mean, you know, I've heard negative things about Donald Hall, too, or but again, my experience of him was somebody who sort of took me in. He helped me with my writing. I would send him chapters that I was writing about dad and he would put big lettering on it. Be more fierce, you know, be more brave. <laughs> but I do remember him saying that. And I just remember him and, you know, a dozen others that I spoke with. Absolutely no surprise when they heard what had happened. They were, I mean, maybe a little shocked, one or two of them, and maybe certainly sad and, you know, empathic for me, but not really surprised given what they knew of my father. And that was extremely validating for me. I'm wondering, Gretchen, if you can read another passage for us that starts on page 257 about the poets who did support you, who did breathe life into you instead of sucking it out, if you could read a little bit there. Sure. It took me months to comprehend all I'd learned from Phil and Margaret Booth, Dan and Liz Hoffman, Maxine Schumann, Cleopatra Mathis, the Wilburs, Don Hall, and Jay Perini. They'd named my father's old-fashioned maleness, his love of hobnobbing with famous people, smoking cigars, drinking bourbon on his boat, or in men's clubs in Boston. I could see in my mind the sweep of family, from my butcher and Eberhardt grandparents to mom and dad, to me and on to my own children, each generation redefining what relationships and family can be. And I saw myself as just one of millions of girls around the world who'd been molested, objectified, abused, or disregarded by our fathers, uncles, brothers, priests, and lovers, a never-ending stream of us robbed of what was rightfully ours alone to give our intimate injustices often silenced, tangled in the old family systems, the primacy of men who chose and still choose to use their power to silence the voices they most need to hear. The myths of my father had shattered like balls of mercury rolling over the edge of my past. I too had colluded in the systemic conspiracy of silence for the sake of my family of origin, for myself, and especially for my father. I'd long wished my original family could have heard my story, really heard, but I suddenly realized poets had been part of my family all along, connected to my parents, consuming our food, filling our living rooms, inhabiting our space. In rejecting them for a career of my own in consulting, I discarded part of my heritage. Sitting in their homes, they'd heard and seen me. 
as if zipped into my skin. They could feel the things I'd felt. Parched for a father's love, I should rightfully have called my own. I turned to his closest friends and cupped my hands at their trough, finding in them the advocates I'd long needed. Speaking truth to power, they warned, would make me vulnerable, but they helped me find my public voice. They'd taken me in as family should. They'd helped me interpret the world I'd lived in as my father never could. I'm wondering about the the, the effect of speaking the truth to power. Your book's been out for a couple of years now. What has the response been to the book? What has the response been academically? You know, you mentioned in, in your Huffington Post piece that the um, high school that your father went to was going to rename its library, which is named after him. What What's the, the results been from this? Right. It's been sort of amazing and 99.9% um, .9 positive. Um, I think I got two emails from men saying, you know, <laughs> what do you know? I doubt that happened or, you know, here you are putting all men in the same quarter or whatever. But I got hundreds of emails from men and women telling me their own stories, thanking me for doing what I'd done, feeling like I had supported the right side of the question in terms of naming or unnaming the library after mm. my dad. You know, lots of book sales and pre-orders for the new book. That's always lovely. And, you know, I think I, I did worry about putting it out. You might think I'm sort of extroverted, but I'm actually pretty introverted and I don't flaunt stuff too much in public, I don't think. But I was so surprised by getting the call from the Austin public, you know, public high school that this had happened. And I didn't really know how to react to it. You know, it was just sort of like, what? It's not what I was expecting when I, I made the call actually to them about something about a poetry prize we have there. And when I heard it, I was just sort of blindsided a little bit. And yet I knew I had to come up with a response. Mm -hmm. um, and I thankfully had the kindest person ever tell me on the phone. I mean, she couldn't have been a better ambassador to sort of tell me what happened clearly, directly, just the way I like it. <laughs> and my immediate reaction was, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I will say that my daughter was, um, who's amazing, of course, <laughs> both my kids are, she had wondered about whether something like that might happen at right. some point after Poetic License came out. It had not occurred to me. Right. Um, and so maybe I'd been primed a little bit, you know, by that conversation I'd had, brief conversation I'd had with her. I guess this is one thing I'd like to say that for people who are abused, particularly in youth or, you know, when they're young and then they live a long life, it never goes away. Yeah. It never goes away. I am a completely different person than I was back then. I'm fine. I've been successful. I have a good family life, you know, et cetera. But it never goes away. And every now and then you'll get another reminder. And that one was another reminder. It was like, oh, now I have to think about it all over again. What do I really think? How do I feel? What would my father think? What would my mother think? You know, but it's tiring, you know? And I love reading all the letters that I get from people and answering them. And at the same time, sometimes I have to meter them out. You know, I 
I just can't take it all in at once. So for me, I think it's turned out okay. I am doing part of my new book launch in Austin because the story takes place there. And so far, I haven't been told I'm not allowed to come into town. So this is Austin, Minnesota, right? Yes. Yeah, Yeah, not Austin, Texas. Not that that matters. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the fact that his high school in Austin said, we're going to rename the library. We're going to take his name off of this this prize. I also, like your daughter, then wondered, well, well, what will Dartmouth do? You know, will Dartmouth? Yes. Yeah. Have you heard anything from them? or has I have not, although I have searched a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I don't think his name is on the poetry room, but I can't uh-huh. tell you that as a fact. Mm-hmm. What I what I can say is that after I kind of resolved my own thinking around what happened in his in his hometown at a public high school, mm-hmm. I was rather proud of the public high school yeah. to have done it directly, called me, made sure that they got in touch with me. I've heard nothing from Dartmouth and but, you know, when I think I've looked for Richard Everhart Poetry Room a couple of times online and it doesn't really come up. So mm-hmm. it may have quietly been taken down. You know, it's not surprising to me that you got emails from people, a couple nasty ones, you know, reminding you not all men and, you know, hashtag not all men. But right. uh, but sometimes many men. How about we'll put it that way. But you you make a lot of, <laughs> you make a lot of space for your father towards the end of the book and understanding where he came from and what fed this extreme neediness to be loved. Yes. The ending of your book then feeds into what your next book is about, The Butcher, the Embezzler, and the Fall Guy, which is a fascinating story <laughs> based on the, the Hormel Meat Company, where your grandfather, your father's father, worked very closely with the founder, George Albert Hormel. Your father was sort of his, your grandfather, excuse me, like right-hand man, for lack of a better phrase. Yeah. Sigmund Freud would be shouting from the rooftops that your grandfather's name is, drumroll please, Alpha, a a looming figure in your own father's life. Yeah. His name is Alpha. You can't make it up. (laughs) Nor the name of the embezzler, Ransom. The embezzler, Ransom Thompson, Ransom, the embezzler who was a bookkeeper for the company. Uh, And your grandfather ends up having to work with Hormel really closely to figure out what's next and at the company. And in this, your whole book is based on this, this story, this white collar crime that really, I think, greatly impacted your family. But in this time, because your grandfather was so focused on this, your father is left to care for his dying mother, um, or who's right. sick with, it seems like lung cancer, although yeah. mm-hmm. echoes of not naming the epilepsy, no one will really say what she's yeah. with, right? Yeah, for a while, yeah. To care for her and his little sister. What did you discover about what your dad was going through at that time? What was his childhood like? And, you know, the earlier journal entries. That right. You yeah. Well, there was a lot. And, you know, I think, you know, a few sort of key things. One, one is that he grew up in an idyllic place with an idyllic childhood. Right. Um, both parents very involved with the children. Um as well as his mother being very involved kind of in 
her husband's affairs with the company. You know, it felt like a team reading about them. It seemed like a wonderful family. My grandfather was obviously very ambitious, but he took part of this was the era too, because I think the Hormel company closed down frequently in the summer because they didn't have ice. So they couldn't store meat anymore. So they would take time off in the summer. And my grandfather would take the whole family, plus a lot of friends, to big camping trips and fishing trips in the big waters in northern Minnesota. And they would have a blast for several weeks. And and so for my father, I think it was a really idyllic childhood. And then when this all came crashing down, the, the illness and ultimate death of his mother when he was 18, his father losing his job, basically losing his considerable wealth and being booted out of the company that he had helped build. I can't help but think that there was some shame involved there. I didn't hear that word from my father, and I certainly didn't read that word in my grandfather's letters. But knowing what I know about trauma and how it works, I can't help but think there wasn't some shame in that. And Mm -hmm. so, and then on top of that, my father, it appears, and it's a little hard to interpret a 1921 journal that he wrote in pen or pencil, but it would appear that his relationship with his mother at, at the end was not exactly appropriate. And yeah, I can't really fault her because she was constantly in a morphine haze. Who knows what she knew was going on or what she had to do with anything. I don't fault her at all, but I think my father was very enamored of her and he really kind of worshipped his mother in a funny way. Mm-hmm. Um, and he worshipped his father, although he was kind of scared of his father, too, in some ways, because his father was powerful and tall, successful and all of that. My dad suffered for many, many years as a result of this trauma. Mm-hmm. And the stories that I heard growing up as a kid both captivated me because of this crazy story of embezzlement and my grandfather and this formal company and all of it was quite dramatic and exciting. But at the same time, I could tell that it was hard for him. And even in his 90s, I can remember talking to him about, we were going out to Austin, my brother and I, for this trip to sort of honor my father when the library was named and high school library was named for him. And I remember having a conversation with him about Austin. He was pretty old, but he was very with it. And he spoke of his mother and just tears falling down his face. I mean, this is a 90-year-old, you know, man, um, (laughs) something that happened 70 years before. So I don't think he ever got over those two things. And I think that impacted me to some degree, you know, because again, it was sort of like, well, what really happened? And was his father at fault at all? And so that's been my my obsession for this book is, is to try to figure out what actually happened. And, you know, I think the the other thing I'll say is that I kind of believe that when we live with abuse for a long time or trauma, maybe of any kind, that my experience anyway, is it, it hardens in one way, but it also softens in another way. It hardens in a sense that I am absolutely convinced of what happened to me. I have no questions about it. I have no lingering doubt. I have no compunction to take it back in or whatever. It's a part of me. So in that sense, it feels hardened. But in another sense, there's softening because 
like you said, I look at my father and what he was going through at the time when he was my age. And if there was anything sort of relationally not great between him and his mother, it was at the same time that it happened to me. And, you know, these things just sort of repeat themselves. It's crazy, right? And, you know, one of my real reasons for just getting involved in, in telling my story, writing my story and considering my story was that I wanted it to stop in my generation. I did not want anything passed along any further. And not that I thought I would do anything, but just from a generational trauma perspective, I, I wanted whatever I could do to make sure that I did my own work and stopped whatever might have been passed down. What has your brother's reaction been? You know, you shared your memory with your brother before you you wrote the book, right? Before you... Yeah. What has his response been like to you and the rest of your family? I mean, he listened carefully to what I had to say and he definitely empathized. He didn't really become an advocate of any kind. And I think, I'm not sure that we've really spoken of it since. I think we probably did once or twice afterwards, but I appreciate that he listened, didn't refute anything, was very sympathetic to, you know, what had happened, et cetera. But I couldn't really, I I didn't really think of him as an advocate. Other family members have been incredible. I mean, two kids have been incredible. My second husband has been amazing, my rock. Um, And cousins have just been incredible. Um, And through this process, including after the book came out and I started getting letters from people, I've heard of, I don't know, a dozen or something, women who had some sort of experience with my father. And all of them were kind of the age I was. They were college students, maybe grad students. But that has been you know, again, in this weird way, validating, but also just so embarrassing and maddening and frustrating and, and, and horrifying for them. You know, I've had several women say that they had never yet told anybody about this, whatever it had happened. It all seemed about the same sort of coming on to them in, you know, innuendo, nothing much more than that, but it affected them greatly. And several told me that I was the first person they were telling after reading my book. So, yeah, we know from the literature and the statistics that these things usually don't happen just once. And it's really sad. I mean, I'm I'm grateful that I don't think he did anything more to them than he did to me. But it still impacted them a lot. You know, they looked up to him as a teacher or a poet and they were wanting attention on their poetry, right? Not on their bodies or whatever. Oh, it's really, it's very disheartening that it's so much of it still goes on now. We have, you know, right now this trial going on Um, and how anybody, anybody in this day and age would not believe someone is beyond me. Yeah. There's an opinion piece in the New York times today about the history of not believing women. Um, Based on the E. Jean Carroll uh, trial uh, against yes. Donald Trump of, of raping her in a dressing room, and yes. um, 
the one of the pull quotes for the article is a quote of Trump's lawyer asking her, well, why didn't you scream? Yes. Um, and so this this blaming of victims. Right. Um, that silences women for decades or right. life. Right. And men is continuing to happen. I remember hearing that, and I believe it's true, that, you know, people who commit violent crime that is not sexual in nature, the victim is never blamed, mm -hmm. ever. But with sexual crime, the victim is always blamed. Right. And that just is, that has to stop. I'm wondering if we can end on an anecdote about you that I love, that I am fascinated by, which is that you're, and you've alluded to it a couple of times in this interview, your profession, your career that you had, that are you retired now or are you still? Yes. Yes, I am retired. Well, for much of your professional life has been dedicated to basically being a CEO whisperer. I've never uh, heard that before. A, con a consultant that works with typically because CEOs, even though things are changing, are typically men to convince essentially powerful men who don't like to be told no or be in difficult positions to be vulnerable. How did that come about? How did you get to that? And do you think your experiences with your father led you there? Well, of course, looking back now, I think they <laughs> definitely led me there. I had no idea in the beginning. I think I was just going to go into business so I could get as far away from poetry and literature as right. possible. Um, and all of that sort of narcissism and egotism that, you know, seemed rampant. And you probably made more money than being a poet. So Yes, I think I did. <laughs> um, and I've always been intrigued by systems. So, you know, family systems, business systems, and governmental systems are all sort of fascinating to me. So I... I found myself in a quiet room with a CEO one day where I asked him what seemed to me kind of stupid questions, but, you know, simple questions, let's put it that way. And he started talking about his background, his father, his brother, his wife, his children, things that really bothered him in his life, things that had been really challenging for him in his life. I was really quite taken aback by it because it had not been something that I had really experienced for the first few years of my business life. But he went there and I was shaking his hand at the end of the meeting or something, leaving. And I said, great meeting, happy to, you know, looking forward to working with you. And he said something like, I've never said these things to anybody but my wife. And I realized at that moment, this was way back in, you know, 1990 or something, that gender would not be an impediment for me, though men had told me it would be. Mm -hmm. Male consultants had regularly told me, your gender will be an impediment. Well, of course, I wanted to prove them wrong. But then in that conversation, I felt like I had proved them wrong because I wasn't a competitor with them. You know, it's possible that the gender sort of helped because I wasn't the accountant or the lawyer, or the, you know, guys that they could talk with. I was sort of a stand-in for an empathic, open woman who was willing to ask tough questions of them. And the more I got to realize sort of what was going on, the more I got better at figuring out how to make it happen. And I think what what I realized at some point, maybe 10 years into my 
almost 40-year career, was these men didn't have anybody to talk to. This was back really when there weren't even women on their management teams or on their boards. And so I was kind of a, I think I served as a bit of a proxy for an assertive, mm. smart enough, um, you know, woman. And they took to it. You know, the good ones, what I thought were the good ones. You know, there were obviously some who didn't want to go anywhere close to any of that. But those who did learned very quickly that their power only became wider and deeper when they showed vulnerability to their staff, when they talked about having some fears about the future, or when they talked about having some questions about decisions that had been made in the past, when they were willing to kind of exhibit some form of weakness as they might have seen it originally, they learned very quickly that actually their power increased, that people had more respect for them, felt they were more approachable, you know, felt that they were more interesting as people. And so I got to a place where that was really one of my most fun jobs was to work with these people who also, you know, this also another tie back to my dad. I was never invited into my dad's men's club, but I was invited in to these men's club. And so it was for me very empowering. And I felt humble about that. I felt humble about, you know, having them cry sometimes. Wow. Um, a couple of colleagues of mine used to joke that I, I made more CEOs cry than anybody they knew. And it was, it was just, I wasn't afraid of their tears, you know, and, and yet I really tried hard to create space for them to talk about what really mattered to them. And they had plenty of other consultants to tell them about their bottom line and their products and their branding and all that stuff. They didn't have someone to really kind of confide in and I held their trust. And, and just as I felt they held mine. Know, that they trusted me in a way that allowed me to help them change a lot in their companies by virtue of the fact that I wasn't a consultant that was just coming in to do something quick and leave. I had a real relationship with the CEO. And I think, you know, that helped in terms of the work that I was trying to do in the inside the company too. And the way I look at it now, it's kind of like I've had a thing about powerful men, I guess, for a long time. Um and I think my father's crowd also helped me not feel very intimidated by <laughs> men in power, that I'd seen plenty of them and I'd seen their flaws. Yes, they were artists and poets, but frankly, power is power, you know, and um, egos are egos. And and I was of the age when the, these men were, of course, older than me. You know, they were 10, 15, 20 years, maybe older than I was, um, but it was during that 90s, aughts, 10s, when they're, we're just beginning to see women come on board. And then as I was leaving, I think the same thing happened. I see it happen with gay and lesbian leaders, leaders of color, you know, where there would be somebody that would sort of break the ice and enable us a better, more clear conversation about what it meant to bring in someone of difference. And, um, and and so I just felt like I was sort of in the right time as a woman to be doing what I did. Hmm. Well, it was really fun. 
myself and the the damaged CEOs of America. Thank you for your your, your questions and your perspective on the world and your honesty and for helping other people to be vulnerable, not only with your former work, but with your writing. So thank you so much for coming on and for for everything. Gretchen, Thank thank you. This podcast was created and produced by Aaron Hosier, Elizabeth Thompson, and Matthew Felt. You can always listen for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google, and anywhere you get your shows. Follow us at Tell Me About Your Father on Instagram and subscribe to our bi-weekly newsletter that accompanies new episodes at tellmeaboutyourfather.com. And if you can, please head to Apple Podcasts to rate and review us. It's just a little thing you can do, and it makes such a difference for us to get the word out about our show. Thanks for listening.